individuals need to be able to find their community. We have this sense of needing to belong and individuals who have high IQs usually throughout their life have struggled in social settings, struggled in educational settings because they either weren't identified to be able to give them the appropriate help or they were identified, but the school district didn't have the resources there. So it's challenging. And what we hear when members join and they attend their first, whatever Mensa event it is, is they go, oh, there are others like me. They are people who get me. I don't have to change who I am. I feel normal for the first time in my life. And that's what Mensa does for those who have high IQs, whose brains don't operate the way the average human does. So we're creating this community for them. is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Trevor Mitchell, who is Executive Director and CEO of American Mensa. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joey, and I'm happy to be here. Hey, so tell us about American Mensa. All right. Well, we are the organization for those who score in the top 2% of IQ tests. We have been around since about 1960 and have continued to thrive and flourish throughout our time in existence. We are actually a chapter within the international organization. I consider it more of a federation. Every country has its own national membership organization, but we come together internationally. We have about 50,000 members in the U.S., 160,000 members worldwide. Wow. What's really interesting, I always like to say, is I have a big age diversity within our membership. My youngest member is three years old. (gasps) Yeah. And my oldest living currently is 106. Trevor, how does one become a member of American Mensa? And how does a three-year-old become a member? So to become a member of American Mensa, you have to score in the top 2% of a valid IQ exam. We have about 150 exams that we will accept. And depending on what that exam is, will really determine what we accept. So previously SATs before 1993 we'll accept, but not after because they started making changes to the test and it no longer identified and was a true sound of intellectual there. We also offer our own test as well if you can't find one. Children, particularly under the age of 14, usually are tested either in a school system or through a child psychologist who is trained on how to administer those kinds of tests because They don't always have the cognitive skills to be able to really understand what's being asked of them. So they need that little bit of guidance. So they will administer the exam. They will norm it. So taking the score, base their age, and give a 
good score to say if they qualify or not. And then they just need to submit their psychologist's report and it meets our conditions. They are eligible for membership. Amazing. Trevor, let me ask you a question. So there's criticism of these tests, right? So I know when my son was applying to college last year, many of the universities said, you know, SAT optional, ACT optional. So there's criticism of these standardized tests. How do you counter that since you require a test to become a member? So I I think that's a very great and valid question. One of the things we do is we contract with a supervised psychologist who actually regularly reviews all of the exams that we administer as well as the ones that we accept. We want to make sure that we are focused on finding tests that really are measuring IQ and with her involvement with not only with her own professional association, but with her actual experience, we're making sure that the ones that we're keeping up with are in place with that. It does raise the question. It's something we've been talking about even at an international level of how do people define intelligence and how can intelligence really be measured? So that's a bigger philosophical question that really will impact how the organization itself looks at membership in the future. But right now we're mandated from that international component that we have to do it this way. So our focus is making sure that anything that we accept is taking into account any kind of bias that may have been built in so we can eliminate those, that we find opportunities for those who are where English isn't the first language, things that will not preclude them from scoring appropriately on the test. So That has been our immediate way to combat this, but we know it's a bigger issue that we need to, we're keeping a pulse on and trying to figure out how can we address this going forward. So Trevor, American Mensa has 50,000 members. They're some of the smartest people in the country. Why do the smartest people in the country need an association? It goes back to the actual founding of the organization in the UK, and it still holds true today these two gentlemen were on a train and their whole notion was how do we get bright intellectual people together and really talk about solving the world's problems? That was their intent. But what has maintained out of that is individuals need to be able to find their community. We have this sense of needing to belong and individuals who have high IQs usually throughout their life have struggled in social settings, struggled in educational settings because They either weren't identified to be able to give them the appropriate help, or they were identified, but the school district didn't have the resources there. So it's challenging. And what we hear when members join and they attend their first whatever Mensa event it is, is they go, oh, there are others like me. They are people who get me. I don't have to change who I am. I feel normal for the first time in my life. And that's what Mensa does for those who have high IQs, whose brains don't operate the way the average human does. So we're creating this community for them. And not everybody who's highly intellectual needs this community, but there are some who do. And that is what has been the forefront of why we continue to exist, because we provide that safe space for these individuals to be able to have that community. Wow. So before we get into the things that you are doing to thrive and to provide services to this hugely diverse set of people, let's talk about your journey. So how did you get to become executive director and CEO? (laughs) It's a fun story. I actually enjoy telling it. It all starts actually in my last association. I was working for Arm International. And that's how I met you. That's right. We were working on a website project together. Delcor brought you all in and we were working on that. That was over a decade ago. Yes. Can't believe it's been that long. 
But while I was there, I was starting that process in my career of saying, where do I go? And I had my sights set on being a CEO of an association one day. And I was starting to interview and I was I was getting only so far, but I also recognized it was my only association I worked for. I've been there for about nine, 10 years. And in 2015, I was at ASA's New Idea Conference giving a presentation and our good friends over at Delcor, Tobin Conley, was standing in the back of the room talking to my predecessor at the time, Pam Donahue, and she was like, I'm looking for a membership director. Oh. And Tobin knew I was looking. He knew what was going on. He knew I was looking to relocate because I was based in Kansas City at the time. He's like, have you talked to Trevor? She goes, would he be interested? He goes, I know he's looking. Have a conversation. Mm. So we did. And I will tell you, after that initial conversation, I said, thanks, but I don't think this is right for me. I think as your membership director, I would be bored. To which I get the apply, oh, no, we have plenty of work for you. I'm like, no, I'm sure you have plenty of work. I'm sure that the work I want to be doing is not what this job will allow me to do. I said, I want to be, if I'm going into an association, I want to be the number two. I want to be working with a CEO that's going to help me prepare to become a CEO myself one day. And that's what I'm looking for. I also was in my head going, this will give me a chance to prove, was I a one-hit wonder at my last association or do I really have the chops to do this? A week later, I get a call. She wants to fly me down to Dallas. I had a different job description. Wow. We did a full day interview and I had the job offer as I was heading on the plane. So a month later, I was moving to Dallas, was the senior director of membership and strategy. And she had confided in me that she was looking to make a move herself before she's like, I have one more in me before our retirement. So over the course of the next two and a half years, we spent a lot of time and there were conversations we had because she knew what I wanted to be. And there were times where I said, I'm not sure if you leave that I want the job at Mensa. Like, <laughs> you know, I was really evaluating it. Right, right. It really gave me this sense of understanding who I am and how do I connect with the organization and making sure that if I was going to step into that top leadership role, that I was connected with the mission and the vision and I could really carry this out. She did eventually find a new job and moved on to another association. And then I stepped in as acting for two months and then the board hired me on full time. I've been with the organization for eight years. I've been the CEO for five, but that was my journey into becoming a CEO. Amazing. So I got to ask, are you a member? <laughs> no, I am not. We actually have it in our handbook that staff cannot be members ah. because one, you really don't want people voting for the board who also it's a conflict, potentially. It is a conflict, yes. That doesn't mean that we don't hire people who are members. I will say, I know what my IQ score is. I know I don't qualify, so that's okay. But I would like to say, while I'm not smart enough to be a member, they were smart enough to hire me, and that's all that matters. And you're smart enough to run this association and help it thrive. That's right. They seem to listen to me, and that's all I need to do to be able to do my job effectively. So let's talk about American Mensa. You've got 50,000 members around the country. How's membership? Right now, membership is about flat. Since the pandemic, we have leveled off. Prior to the pandemic, we were having a little bit of a decline over a couple of years. And of course, the pandemic definitely hit us. But we rebounded from that and have been flat for the last couple of years. So what we are doing now is being really able to focus on how do we deliver value to the member of today and the member of the future, and then focus on what does that mean for the organization. So while the flatness has allowed us to take a pause and a breath, 
it's also giving us an opportunity to say, what is the next evolution of this organization looks like? So we remain relevant for those who need us going forward. Well, it sounds like, you know, when we were prepping that you're making some big changes at the organization, kind of in anticipation of some growth in order to spur growth. So one thing you're doing is you're changing your testing. Yes, that is absolutely right. So earlier I mentioned people can apply through prior evidence testing. So they've tested somewhere else or take our test through a proctor. The pandemic actually helped us accelerate a project that we were working on and providing electronic testing or private testing through actual testing centers. Something probably many of your listeners are thinking, well, we already do this for our certification. Well, there was always this piece with IQ tests that we wanted to make sure no one was doing anything that could compromise the exam or give them insight. So being able to do that through a testing center took a lot of work to not only get the rights for the electronic piece, but make sure we had all the pieces in place that made sure that it gave a good quality score. So that actually accelerated it. And the benefit it's providing is the other options were time restrictive. So if you do it through our local volunteers, you had to go in on a Saturday at an 8 a.m., like a traditional ACT, SAT type setting and take the test. Not everybody's equipped or well positioned to take tests at that time. Some people do better at 3 p.m. So the testing center allowed us to take options and allowed us actually to continue doing testing during the pandemic whenever people couldn't meet in person in groups. So now that we have recovered from the pandemic, that option has actually continued to grow for us. And we're looking at other ways to provide that kind of option, maybe even remote proctoring. So someone can log in through your computer, through a video, watch you. If you're particularly in a really remote area, that's allowing us to provide more opportunities to do that. And we're also working right now on a partnership with a university that actually has a way to test kids at a more broad-based level we could be able to provide an option to parents who are looking for their child to be tested if they're not tested in their school district, but also can't test with us because they're under our age limit. So we're finding ways to counteract that barrier that has been existing for us for a while. So it sounds like maybe with the changes in testing that you'll be able to really make the testing more available and therefore increase membership. That's absolutely correct. Now, I love the fact that you've got this really diverse group of members and you've got special interest groups within the membership. And so I guess if you think about it, like 50,000 members who are curious and have a love of learning, they're going to bring to the membership their own interests. And what's interesting about American Mensa is unlike maybe your traditional society or trade association, which is kind of centered around a particular profession or a thing, you're everything. Yes. So how do you support that community. You've got special interest groups. Tell us about those. <laughs> so I think for us, the special interest groups is a really great example of we find ways to allow our members to connect in things that interest them. It's not about us having to drive a particular topic or conversation. We're able to organically allow it to happen. And during the pandemic, we were sitting at about 110, 115 special interest groups and about 130 or so geographically based chapters. Since the pandemic, those have flipped. We have about 145, 150 special interest groups wow. and about 120, 125 local chapters. Those chapters are kind of struggling. But what it did is 
during the pandemic, the special interest groups were able to fill a need that these members were looking for. And because it wasn't geographically based, some of them that may have a smaller interest, so example, our scuba diving SIG, they were able to connect with more people across the country as opposed to trying to find people in their immediate area. And they talked about the equipment that they use. They talked about different places to dive. They shared photos. They were creating this community. And since the pandemic, I've been aware that they're planning private trips. Like they're all finally getting to meet up and going on a diving excursion together. Wow. So they do allow staff to sit in, even though I'm not a member, sit in. And one of the ones I thoroughly enjoy is I appreciate musical theater. Growing up in high school and college in band and in music, musical theater was just another avenue for expression and something I appreciated. So we have, a, it's called Musical M's. And it's funny watching at the beginning of January when everybody's new Broadway season is coming out. Everybody's comparing, oh, you get this show, you got that show. And we'll talk about, oh, I went to New York and did this. And I'm seeing this performer here. You see that enthusiasm, you see that passion come out and you see how they're connecting from, we all know, be able to create those authentic connections within membership is what drives growth with the organization because they're going to retain and they're going to bring other people back in Right, right. because that has just been fundamental for us. So that's why our special interests are growing. We just added three new special interest groups last week based off of needs that they had. They submitted their application and got approved. So that is becoming a bigger focus for us from a national perspective on how do we really support these groups to help drive those connections, those opportunities, those engagement pieces with our membership. Trevor, what's the environment that these special interest groups operate in? Are they in a community platform? Are they on social media? So a lot of them primarily existed in more public-facing social media, primarily Facebook. They didn't have a private Facebook group, and many of them still do. We have been encouraging them to and working with them to move them into our online community platform. We use Higher Logics Communities. We call it Mensa Connect. But what we do is we don't require them to stop using those social media sites as well. And whenever you go online and you start looking through our list of special interest groups, you'll see their name, you'll see their description, but you'll see a link to every one of the ways that they engage and connect with each other on there. So it's an icon for everyone. We're all familiar with the various ones, but we make sure that as long as they tell us, because annually we have them update, like what was the information you have? We don't want them to stop doing that because if they stop in one and don't transfer over to our internal system correctly, then we have a chance of losing them, which actually breaks the system that is so ingrained in the culture. So we're really focusing a lot on helping them to survive and thrive, and then eventually hoping that they will move over into our community, but we're not forcing to at this point. So what you're doing with the communities is really allowing your members to find their tribe within the larger community of curious people interested in learning. Absolutely. And I mean, at our annual conference, we have one whole room scheduled for the entire time that we're there for these big SIGs to schedule and have in-person meet and greets. Ah. So what's the craziest special interest group you have? Oh. Do you have one devoted to Korean dramas, my current love? <laughs> I'm not sure about Korean dramas. <laughs> one of the ones I think that's the most interesting to talk about is what they call Hell's M. So they base it off of Hell's Angels. Oh. Their purpose is it's for people who like to party hard, but also are dedicated to volunteering in the organization. And so they're the same ones that will volunteer at our events. 
mean, you have to do so much volunteerism or so to be able to be a member of that SIG. Like they qualify themselves. They don't require any assistance from us. Wow. But it's a legacy thing that has been going on for years. I mean, they're so formal that they have officers and some policies and everything else. But that's what I think is really interesting. But these things can go from, well, we have various generational SIGs. We have various racial identified SIGs. We have sexual orientation SIGs. But like I talked about musical M's, one of the ones I, I'm also a part of is called Smart Bar. So it's people who like interesting cocktails ah. or Diz nerds. So people who like Disney, whether it be movies or the theme parks, anything Disney related. Amazing. They have it. There's one for pastors. So no matter if you are of a Christian faith, of a Jewish faith or any other faith, if you are in that sort of pastor role, they all get together and talk about it. So wow, it spans the gamut of what we offer. Hey, so let's turn to something different that you're doing, and that is you're trying to diversify your revenue streams. Yes. Like you said, you're not devoted to a profession or an industry, so sponsorship and trade shows are challenging for you. You've got some new things that you're doing with branding and licensing. So tell us about that. That's the one thing about Mensa is we have a strong brand, brand recognition in the public space. And so it's something we've been focusing on for a while. We're really working on growing it right now. We have focused on one of those opportunities that we can really align our brand that generates revenue. It doesn't actually create any negative opportunities or mitigate any kind of negative risk to that. One of them we've done is working with two of our special interest groups that are around alcohol, as it may be, and are working with another partner and created a wine subscription for our membership. And so we started with those two things because we knew we had a built-in base around the consumption of wine and especially cocktails. And what they get is they pay a fee, they get two boxes a year, and these are wood boxes with everything burned into the box itself. So it's a wood burnt box. So it's a beautiful box. It is a beautiful box. We call it Great Minds Wine. So it doesn't actually have our brand and logo on it, but it is something that's branded to us. We work with them on the wines, everything else. And they do this for several other organizations. And we are in our first year. We have about 50 members signed up currently, but we make revenue off of their subscription. I think the threshold of a minimum of a hundred that they, you know, they give you with your perspective package is with a hundred people, you would make about $25,000 a year off of this program. For us, it was looking into where are our members engaging that has subsequent numbers and how can we create partnerships from it. Other things that we're looking at, it's really interesting. We have, at least interesting to me, we're working with an entertainment company and have three different television shows in production right now. What? TV shows. TV shows. We have a reality show where we're using bits of members to try to help solve cold cases. We're working on a game show and then we're working on a scripted show. For us, it's not always using bits of members and everything else, but it's how do they use our name in relation to this or bits as the organization. Through those opportunities, we garner revenue. And in the process, we're making sure we have steps built in place that we making sure that what they're doing doesn't tarnish our brand, doesn't look at creating any kind of negative effects. So we are involved in that process along the way. The last one I want to just briefly mention is we're working with a publisher. We've been publishing crossword puzzles, Sudoku books, brain teaser books. You can find it at airports, Amazon, anywhere. Doing that for decades. But now we're starting to work with them on what if we 
did more of like our own bits of publishing. And so the intent is that we work with them to identify topic areas of books where it could be, these are the smart things to do around home gardening, or these are the smart things to do around travel. Ah. And really putting our own Oprah's book club, our smart reads guide on top of this. And we're actually also branding it into our kids area to say, what are these kids books that are really meant to focus for kids? If it's successful, because we're just starting it right now, if it's successful, we eventually want to say, how can we turn this into an opportunity where our members who are interested in being self-published have the resources to go through them if they meet a certain threshold to do that? So at a certain point, we're picking a branding opportunity and turning it to a potential benefit if it pans out. Amazing. So what you're doing is increasing brand relevance and brand awareness while generating revenue. Absolutely. It's the dream and we're making it work. You're also probably reaching a new demographic with some of these new things. Like with the TV shows, you're probably reaching maybe some younger audiences. We are. And what we have found is the brand has been really strong for those who grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even mid-90s. But as it has gone past that, unless they are really connecting with people who are in the organization, beyond that, the brand recognition isn't with those individuals. So we're trying to find new ways to step out in front of them. My dream, it never happened. I was always hoping that we could have engaged Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory and kind of say like, you know, he was missing his membership card or, ah. or something that regard. But finding ways in the mainstream popular sector to get our name out there to start getting people to think about what they are. And I actually had an opportunity pre-pandemic to sit on a panel at San Diego Comic-Con talking about how pop culture is making being smart and nerdy or cool to the general population. So we're seeing us having an opportunity to change the narrative that was once there, but finding more ways so we're people are aware of who we are and what to know more about us. And so that all these things allow us to do that. Well, speaking of which, I think you've got a foundation. We do. That's really trying to further this work. So tell us about that. And you're doing some new things. Correct. So our foundation has been around for 50 years, but it is primarily there to help us focus on the research and creating opportunities that really benefit humanity around intellect. And they have just completed their strategic plan. And what we have always focused on within society is children, because it's easy to identify them, provide them resources in a school setting. But what we don't ever talk about is, while they may be identified as a child, as gifted, they're also gifted as a teenager, as a young adult, as an adult, as an aging individual. And so what we're really focusing on now is how do we understand and the needs of someone who is gifted throughout their lifespan and be able to really support them and provide them research. Additionally, as individuals are more and more being identified as and diagnosed with either autism or Asperger's or any other of those mental diagnoses, we're finding there are also a lot of them in our organization. Ah. And so how can we support them? How can we address that? What is it they need to do? How do we help them be better of themselves within their life. And at the end of the day, we're focusing on the human. And while intellect, we have Mensa as a membership organization is truly measured by a test score, the foundation's allowing us to explore multiple levels of intellect. And it doesn't have to be a top 2%. We can look at emotional intelligence. We can look at creative intelligence. 
the whole focus of neurodiversity in terms of how people's brains function and where they have capabilities to excel and there's no restrictions for our foundation allows us to really explore that and provide some value back to the membership organization while also creating opportunities from a more global perspective because of that. So it's exciting time because we are able to dig in and hopefully do more for humanity by understanding those pieces and how do we really engage more of that there. So that's something that's not only with everything else going on, I'm really excited to see how that plays out because it has an impact on the membership organization too. Boy, Plato would be proud. Yes. Smartest people in the country thinking about some of the toughest problems. That's the goal. We keep at it. Hey, so speaking of bringing people together, your annual gathering is what you call your annual conference, and that's coming up in June. So what's going on there and what can we expect? Yes, so it is coming up very, very soon. We are going to be at the Baltimore Inner Harbor. So we're excited to come back to the East Coast. This event is four and a half days of anything and everything. We lovingly refer to it as Nerd Camp because when you show up, you can go to anything. Nice. We have sessions throughout the day. I've never been to a conference until coming here that you will have educational sessions, speakers up until nine o'clock at night. Oh. That just is not heard of. Wow. Right. But we also will have a 20,000 square foot ballroom that is set up with board games along the perimeter. People who will come in and spend their entire time playing games with other mentors the entire time. The event itself is getting a little unwieldy for us. As most organizations, we continue to add and add and add. We don't take away. So we're now getting into that process, particularly as associations, we are seeing the changes in AV and food and beverage and hotel contracts and everything else that we need to be able to be a little bit more nimble, more flexible. And so my board is understanding of that and actually having the conversations about how do we help let the organization do what it does and needs to do from a staff perspective, while also really keep the integrity that is the volunteer piece in the appropriate places. And that's been a process for you, right? It has, because I've had to outline a lot of things for them and say, this isn't about staff wanting to take more ownership because we really don't want more stuff to take. We all know staff are all usually overworked as it is, but it's by doing it the way we're doing it, we're actually creating more work for each other as opposed to less work. And so going back to what is the purpose of the event? What is it that we need to have happen? Who is best equipped to do that? And then how do we create a strong partnership that allows us to do this? And we've been working on that through several other programs and initiatives, and that really helps us. Sometimes it's as an ED, I just have to, I have it all in my head. I know what I want to happen. I have to wait for that right opportunity. And right now the stars are aligning around our annual conference for us to look at that because we don't want to strip away what people are familiar with and what they have come to know and enjoy about it. But we have to look at it from a holistic standpoint of, we can't add more space to any of the properties around the country. So we have to change something and this is the time to look at it. Yeah. And I bet this event is full of tradition and values. It is. So how do you honor that while creating something new and work within your governance to make sure that they feel like it's respected? That's the absolute key. And a lot of it is having honest conversations, but really focusing on here's the problem. Here's what we're trying to solve. I have a group that is used to being the smartest people in the room, and they love to solve puzzles. Ah. So it's all about framing it in a way that doesn't put my own biases in it, of course, of here's the problem. What are the solutions we have? What are we trying to solve? And the more I keep them focused on that, 
the more we are able to effectively get through and make good decisions for the organization. In this case, what is the right decision for this event going forward? Oh, man, those must be crazy board meetings because they're always the smartest people in the room. They are. It's quite interesting. One of my favorite things to always ask <laughs> is whenever they like, oh, because they want to know more information. They want to dive deep. And I'll ask the question, do you need to know this to make a decision? Or do you need to know this because you're curious? Ooh, good questions to ask. It is. If it's curious, I say, okay, write it down, come to me afterwards, and we'll talk about it. If it's for you to make a decision, I'll work on getting it for you right now. Because otherwise, you go down this rabbit hole because they're curious, but it's not really necessary for governance or decision-making. Absolutely. And I had to instill a trust with them that if they were curious, I will definitely get them an answer. I will follow up on that 100%. But it's a matter of when do I do that? And they've gotten to a point like, oh, I'm just curious. I'll talk to you later, Trevor. I'm like, there you go. Nice. Usually what I'll do is I'll collect all the questions and within a week after the meeting, I'll formulate answers to all of them and then send them all out to the board like, here was the question that was asked. Here's the answer. Amazing. Well, Trevor, I hope that you'll come back in the next year and tell us about how you're reformulating the annual gathering and how membership is doing. I would absolutely love to come back. Trevor, thanks so much for today. Thank you. This has been a pleasure and a joy. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.